A New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day, again John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's Peter brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Our sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Balsavanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Gerald. Before we dive into our study of uh, our final study of First Peter, we wrap it up the letter today, Lord willing. Uh, Lord willing, if I live to the end of the sermon, once again I've learned not uh, not to take anything for granted. Every breath is a gift. Every day is a gift. And before we dive into our study this morning, I've got a lot of jumbled up things in my heart that I hope will come out in a coherent way to you this morning. First of all, to those visitors that are here with us, thank you so much for being here. We are thankful for your presence, but you have joined us, whether you realized it or not, in a time when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We are in grief and mourning over the death of 18-year-old Grace Fowler, uh, a covenant member of this body. So you're with the hurting church right now, but you're also with a trusting church. We walk through the valley we will not be stuck there, and it's the shadow of death, just the shadow. Jesus, our Lord and Savior and Redeemer and serpent crusher and death conqueror has taken care of the substance of death at the cross by defeating it through his glorious resurrection. So while death is a reality... And while it may come to any one of us or maybe all of us tomorrow, 
It's a defeated foe. It's the last enemy. Jesus has defeated it. And so we rejoice in that. And uh, I just am full of thanksgiving at the same time that I'm full of grief. Only a Christian can say something like that. Non-believers cannot say that. They grieve with no hope. We grieve with hope. And I'll remind you of that at the benediction today. Secondly, I'm so thankful and so honored to be a covenant member of this church family. If you're visiting with us today and you have the same theological persuasion as we are, you could not find a better church. And I say that without apology and without shame and without hesitation. Just to give you a few brief examples, I'm a part of a church where a church member calls the elders and says they want to take care of the funeral for the Fowlers. Totally. Without limit. That's the kind of people we have here. I'm a part of a church where when you visit the dad of the young girl, one of the things he says at the end of our about hour-long time together with other members of the family and friends that have gathered there in his home, he expresses his thanksgiving for solid theology. Because that's what's going to get us through times like this. I'm a part of a church where the youth minister is not, ashamed, or not afraid or hesitant to deal with hard subjects. I sat in their Sunday school class this morning just to be there, just to be with them, just to see them. Might not see them next week. And he dealt very straightforwardly, very lovingly, very graciously with some hard subjects. And the thing I would add to that, he may have said this when I had to lead to get mic'd up and get ready. He may have said this. Young people, you might be tempted to say, you know, this isn't fair. What have we always said here? You you do not want fair. Fair would be hell for every one of us, no matter how long we live. For the wages of sin is death. And only Jesus has taken care of that. You cannot take care of that yourself. Only Jesus has taken care of that, and you must trust in him. You must confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And it's the resurrection that gives us hope. Secondly, I would say to that, to our young people, you know, God didn't promise you a long life. So let's not come complaining to him about that. God did not promise any of us a long life. He promised us eternal life with him forever. He didn't promise a long life here in this evil age, in this sin-cursed world. He promised eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. And that promise is only gained through belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm thankful to be in a church where the music minister always seems to know what to sing. Always. 
I'm just thankful to be a part of you. You are um, a gift of God to my life. So let's finish up 1 Peter today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for another day to gather together and worship you and to hear you speak to us from your precious word. We cried again for the Fowler family that you would comfort them in their grief. Comfort us in our grief. But thank you that we can grieve with hope. Father, as we finish this letter today, where these are timely words from the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace your words of hope. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Heaven and earth may pass away, but your words will not. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word is eternal. So let us hear it today, Father. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, last time we considered in the couple of verses we looked at last, last uh, Sunday, or last time I was here, thankful for Mark's message last week, uh, Last time we considered the church as God's resistance army. We pondered our mental attitude, which is to be sober-minded and watchful. Uh, this week, God has reminded us to be sober-minded once again, to be serious about life and death. Um, we talked about and thought about our prowling adversary, the devil, the one who has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And we talked about some of his common lies that he tries to force upon us and his death plots that he tries to kill. Things like our joy, our unity, our peace, uh, our, our trust in God. He's always trying to get us to doubt God. And you better believe he's going to use the events of this week to try to get us to doubt God. You better believe that. So you better be ready. You better be sober-minded and watchful. We saw our standing order to resist, to resist against the attacks of the devil, to resist his temptations, to stand firm in the full armor of God, to stand firm in the faith once delivered to the saints, and resist with every ounce of energy that we can muster from the precious Holy Spirit that is indwelling us. And then we considered, we ended with our the, the, the reminder of the worldwide brotherhood. Our sufferings are not unique. We've got brothers and sisters all over the world going through the same things, the exact same things. So today we finish up the letter. And as I said, I believe the Lord has some timely words for us today. The final words of Peter's first letter. And he finishes the letter strong, baby. He finishes strong. Let's see how he ends this. Number one, we've got a confident word of expectation, a confident word of expectation. It's a, it's a threefold word, a threefold word of hope. As Peter closes his first letter, he wants to point us once again to the hope that we have. And this has been a constant theme of the letter, if you remember. First Peter 1.3, we saw this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So he began the letter with this idea, this theme, uh, this hope that we have, this hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I know it's not Easter, but the resurrection is everything. If Jesus is not alive, our faith is vain. We're fools if Jesus is not alive. But as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, he is alive, and he is the first fruits of a great resurrection, and that's going to be ours when we receive our glorified body at the return of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Then in verse 13 of chapter 1, he hits on it again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. When he returns, we're going to see that all of our faith, all of our hope, all of our trust was not in vain. It's going to be the final full exclamation point. We already know that now. But that's going to be the final full exclamation point when Jesus returns at his revelation. Then in verse 21 of chapter 1, Peter's talking about Jesus. And he says, who through him, him being Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this idea of hope isn't a uh, last-minute subject he's bringing about here at the end. It's been a theme throughout his letter. And here he expresses our hope or our confident expectation in three ways. First, he tells us that our suffering will be for a little while. It will be for a little while. We've been suffering this week. And we may suffer for several more days, weeks, months. Heck, God's providence for you or for me may be to suffer for the rest of our lives. But it's still temporary. Someone may ask... Okay, what if my suffering does last for my my entire life? Well, compared to eternity, that's a little while. It's still a little while. Get with with Will over here, our math guy. He has a great illustration this morning in Sunday school class about using numbers and using how much of our life, what fraction of our life is, or what percent of our life is eternity. And it comes out to 0%. Because eternity is infinite. If you live to be 100 years old, 100 over infinity is zero. It's zero percent. Our suffering, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how much of our life may be consumed by it, for the Christian, it's a little while. It's temporary. And beloved, what Peter is telling us is reminding us, this is the way we need to think. Because too often, we focus on the now. We focus on the present. Oh, poor me. My life is so bad right now. Let's focus on eternity. Let's set our minds on things above and not on the now. Not on things of this earth. This is the way we need to think. Think. We need to think in the realm of eternity. 
We need to think in the realm of, 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 of forever. It's a call to stop thinking only in terms of the present. Suffering is temporary, no matter how long it lasts in this life. God's promised rewards are eternal. They are forever. And when we come to the reality of them in the new heavens and the new earth, they will never end. And we will for, for, for certain and fully and finally see how temporary this life was. As, Roman, as Paul said in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 to 18. For this, look what he, how he calls it, how he describes it. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing, temporary. How did the author of Ecclesiastes put it? A mist. They're vanity. They're transient. But the things that are unseen, Jesus, the throne, angels, a congregation from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation, they are eternal. So, beloved, think eternally. Think with the eternal viewpoint. The secular person thinks in the now. The Christian thinks in the above. In the eternal realm. Second, he states that God has called the believer, look at this, to his eternal glory in Christ. We're in, first, we're in verse 10. He has called the believer to his eternal glory in Christ. Beloved, this is our destiny. This is our destiny. This is where we are headed. Eternal glory. The hope of eternal glory. Ponder it deeply. And note, this is not an invitation to be accepted or declined. Okay? This is not an invitation to be accepted or declined. It is a divine summons. As Simon Kistemacher says in his commentary, it is a royal command which the recipient must obey and cannot ignore. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Theologians call this God's effectual call. You know, there's the general call. There's the general call that goes out to all the, world, all the earth. Today I will give a general call to every unsafe person in here. To the elect, it will be an effectual call. Because if not today, one day they will respond. It's a summons they cannot dismiss or disobey. So this call to eternal glory is an effectual call. It is directly connected to the doctrine of election. 
Before the foundation of the world, God called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Paul unpacks it beautifully in this very familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen again to verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. Hallelujah. Got to hear from the Prince of Preachers. Here's Charles Spurgeon's words on, on this calling to eternal glory. Here's what he said. Oh, blessed men whose very losses are their gains, whose sorrows produce their joys, whose griefs are big with heaven. Well, may, well may we be content to suffer If so, it be that all things are working together for our good and are helping to pile up the excess of our future glory. Going to prison with Christ will bring us into the palace with Christ. Smarting or hurting with Christ will bring us into reigning with Christ. Being ridiculed and slandered and despised for Christ's sake will bring us to be sharers of his honor and glory and immortality. Who would not be with Christ in his humiliation if this is the guarantee that we shall be with him in his glory? Hallelujah. Third, the the third word of, of, of encouragement, he reminds us, that God is sanctifying us and will ultimately complete his work. Here's how he says it at the end of verse 10. Uh, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, I could have done a word study of all those, of those four words, but I, I just wanted to sum it up like this. All these words mean basically the same thing. Peter is using four fairly synonymous words to emphasize his point. It's like, uh, um, well, I, I can't think of a good illustration off the top of my head, but it's like if I used several words to try to express how much I love you, you know. I adore you. I adore, cherish, treasure, really love you. Okay, all those words mean basically the same thing, right? Well, that's what Peter's doing here. He wants to get the point across, and he uses four words that mean basically the same thing. Let me let, since I'm so bumbling here, let me let John MacArthur explain it to you. He, He says this, Peter concisely describes the promise of that earthly sanctifying process of spiritual maturation by God with four nearly synonymous words. These terms all connote strength and immovability, which God wants for all believers as they face the spiritual battle. Remember, that's what we had just talked about in the preceding verses, the battle against our enemy, Satan. And then note this, God will do this. God will do this. The God of all grace 
will, not maybe, not might, he will himself. He will himself. Double emphasis there. God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will do this, beloved, not us. Not us. We won't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can't restore ourselves. We can't confirm our standing before God. We are powerless to strengthen ourselves. We cannot establish the foundation on which we stand. God does it all. And that, well, that may be why Peter calls him in this verse the God of all grace. The God of all grace. He does it all. He chooses us before the foundation of the world. He sends Jesus to pay for our sin and deliver us. He saves us through the blood of his son. He grants us repentance to respond properly. He gives us new birth by the Holy Spirit. He justifies us. He declares us righteous and not guilty in his sight. He is sanctifying us and will one day completely sanctify us. He fills us with his spirit. He will complete the work he began in us. He will glorify us. He will bring us to himself in glory forever. He does it all. He is the God of all grace. He is the God of electing grace. He is the God of saving grace. He is the God of heart-opening eye-opening grace. He is the God of life-giving grace. He's the God of forgiving grace. He's the God of comforting grace. Oh, how we need that this morning. He's the God of sustaining grace to walk, to allow it to cause us to walk through the valleys that he brings into our life. He is the God of sanctifying grace, constantly and consistently making us more like Jesus day by day, moment by moment. He is the God of heaven preparing grace. He is preparing a place for us that where he is, we shall be with him. He is the God of amazing, unending, loving grace. Human words do not suffice. To even talk about it. Paul reminds, of the, uh, reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. When he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, everything you have is a gift of God. The breath you just took, a gift of God. The day you are living in today, this is the day he has made. Everything's from him. What do you have that you did not receive? And in John 15, 5, Jesus states it like this. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. 
You say, oh, I can do something. Yeah, I can walk out of this building. I can, you know, continue to decide not to receive Jesus. I can get in my car and drive away. I can go eat lunch. I can do whatever. What are you talking about? You, can, you can't do nothing. You, you can do nothing that means anything. Do you, see, do you hear what I'm saying? Do you see the difference? To live a life without Jesus is to live a, a life of nothingness. Of meaninglessness. It means nothing. You, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing to honor the one who created you. You can do nothing to glorify God. And that's why you were created, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And apart from Jesus, you can do none of that. We'll hit on this with our youth this morning about wasting your life. To go through life without Jesus is the biggest waste of a life created in the image of God. Dear friend, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Don't live a life of nothingness. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing that means anything. You can do nothing apart from Jesus, that counts for eternity. You can do nothing apart from Jesus that pleases your creator. Nothing, zilch, nada, zero, not a thing. The good news is today's the day of salvation. That can change right now, right now. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing that honors God. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing that matters for eternity. Apart from Jesus, we will not be restored, confirmed, strengthened, or established. When we reject the God of all grace, our lives are wasted. What a tragedy! What a sad state. So if you've never done so, I urge you with every fiber of my being to bow to the God of all grace today, right now, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Have you not been reminded of that this week? You are not guaranteed tonight, the next hour, the next breath. Today's the day. In verse 10, Peter is reminding us that suffering always comes before glory. No matter what Joel Osteen says, our best life will, will never be now. Never. Life to, this life is supposed to be hard. God uses this life to make us like Jesus. Our best life will never be now. Never. It will be later. It will be when we die or after Jesus returns. Life now is hard. It is fraught with trials and difficulties and heartache and pain. David Helm sums it up pretty well when he says this. Peter repeats this here in summary fashion to fix it forever in our mind and heart and to encourage us with the promise that God will see us through. God will one day bring us home. We will suffer for a little while. That is the whole life through. The whole life through. But then we will gain eternal reward and glory. Therefore, Peter has chosen to end his letter 
not with suffering and submission, but with our salvation. We're to go forward each day in the light of his promise. So, beloved, that's my encouragement to you today. Go forward each day in the light of this glorious promise, in these great encouraging words of hope from verse 10. Moving on now to verse 11. In verse 11, we get a triumphant word of exaltation. A triumphant word of exaltation. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's just ponder that for a minute. In this name, we see this a lot in Scripture. This happens a lot. The Bible writers do this a lot. Think about it. Peter is writing. He's just finished writing about the glorious work of God in growing us and sanctifying us. And confirming us and restoring us and perfecting all that. And that causes Peter to burst out with a brief doxology of praise that proclaims God's sovereignty over all things and for all times. Dominion means sovereignty. To him be the dominion. To him be the power. To him be the the, the control. To him be rulership. Dominion. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Peter praises God for his sovereignty. And he's just finished in the previous chapter talking about what? Troubles and trials and fiery trials and hardships. But that doesn't back Peter away from the truth of God's sovereignty. Let's, let's remind ourselves, it's weeks like this, and we've had them before in our history. It's weeks like this where we're, come, we're brought face to face with the question, do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you really believe God is sovereign? Do you really believe ultimately everything really is going to be okay? It's more than just believing in God, as we've said many times. It's believing God. Do you believe God? When he says... He will confirm you. He will restore you. He will establish you. After you've suffered a little while, after you've lived this life, in other words, after you've lived this life, you will be with me. You will be where I am. You will be fully glorified. You will be like Jesus. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but one day face to face. And when we see him, we will be as he is. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So Peter praises God for his sovereignty in the midst of hardship and trial and fiery trials. Remember, that's what he called them in chapter 4. No matter what's happening around us, God is eternally in control. Do you believe that? After what we've experienced this week, do do you still believe that? His dominion may be challenged by the ungodly rulers of this world, but it will never be defeated. It will never be toppled. It may be ignored by apathetic atheists, but one day they will be confronted with it. One day every person will stand before the full, total dominion of God. They will stand before his massive, majestic lordship. But then, for the unbeliever, it will be too late. Yes, they will bow. Every knee will bow. But for them, it will be right before they're cast into outer darkness. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. One day every eye will see God's dominion on full display. Believers, as Paul tells us in, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, believers will marvel. They will marvel 
at their arriving king. And unbelievers will shudder. They will shudder before they are cast into outer darkness. And at that truth, at that truth, Peter breaks forth in wondrous adoration. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As I said earlier, the human Bible writers, uh, the ones inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this precious book that we have, are regularly doing this. Paul was probably the one doing it the most. He's always doing it. His most famous, probably, is Romans 11.36, right? He's just given us 11 chapters of doctrine. Of, 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 of solid doctrine, of solid, as Jeff would have said, solid theology, beautiful theology, 11 chapters of it. Explaining the gospel totally and fully. And then the last three, 9 through 11, okay, what about Israel? What about election? These hard chapters of theology and ending end times and all this. And he just bursts out at the end of chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. He just breaks out in a little worship session when he thinks about the truth of God's word. Jude did it at the end of his letter in verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Before all time, now and forever. Amen. In his apocalyptic letter, the Apostle John did it in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, my question for you this morning, beloved, is shouldn't we have times like that? Shouldn't we be doing that? When we think about the goodness and grace of God and the undeserved love that he's lavished upon us in Jesus, shouldn't we have those times of just bursting out in praise from our hearts? It doesn't have to be anything wild and crazy and uncontrolled. It doesn't have to be anything that calls attention to yourself. It can be silent. Have you ever just sit there silently and your heart's just bursting with thanksgiving and gratitude and praise? If you're a Christian, you've experienced that. I know you have. If you haven't experienced it, you might not be a Christian. And again, today's the day of salvation. Just a spontaneous outpouring of undeserved gladness that comes when we truly ponder what God has done for us. Even in times of heartache. That's where you know it's really real in times of heartache. May God make us people who are consistently overflowing with praise to the God of all grace, no matter what happens in this life. No matter what. In verse 12, we get a third word, a concluding word of exhortation. A concluding word of exhortation by Silvanus. Okay, Silvanus. You know, th- this is one of those things where you get, in, in some translations, it's Silas. Uh, most of the commentators that I read believe this is the, Silvanus and Silas, same person. Kind of like Butch and Hollis. You know what I mean? 
okay? For you visitors, my real dorky name is Hollis, okay? Uh, <laughs> but at least Sylvanus and Silas kind of sound alike, okay? Um, but probably the same guy. That's kind of where I'm leaning. We'll find out in heaven, okay? Uh, and what's the word of exhortation here? Stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in the grace of God. That's what he's telling us. Sylvanus was either the person who dictated the letter. Okay, he may have been the dictator of the letter, the one that wrote it down. Like, like, kind of like the Gospel of Mark. Most theologians believe Mark is recording for Peter. Okay, uh, Sylvanus may have been the secretary for Peter in this. Or maybe he may have been the deliverer. He may have been the one that delivered the letter to these people that were scattered. So, um, anyway, we'll find out in heaven. Not a big deal. Doesn't affect our theology. One iota, one micro, microchip, it does not affect anything. Okay? We'll find out in heaven. Hey, I want you to meet uh, Silas. Hey, Silas, were you Sylvanus? Do you have another name? We'll do all that in heaven. Okay? It doesn't matter now. Okay? Um, what we want to focus on is the exhortation. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm. Stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in your salvation. Stand firm in your commitment to the people of God. Stand firm in your commitment to the truth of the word of God. Stand firm in all things that God's amazing grace is connected to. This is a constant theme throughout Scripture. Give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. 2 Corinthians 1, 24, not that we lord it over your faith, stand firm therefore and do not submit or, and for your, I'm sorry, I'm, start over, Say, uh, Calm down, back to earth, 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, Galatians 5.1. I, I had those two crossed there. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What was that yoke of slavery in Galatians? Who remembers our study of Galatians from hundreds of years ago? Okay. The yoke of slavery was doing something to save yourself. The Judaizers said, okay, believing in Jesus is good, but that's not enough. You've also got to be circumcised. You've also got to do something yourself. That's the yoke of slavery. We add nothing to our salvation. Stand firm in Christ alone. Stand firm in grace alone, alone, faith alone, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Ephesians 6, 13, take up, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Philippians 4, 1, therefore my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Oh, man, I can so identify that when I think of my church family. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Beloved, stand firm in the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. 
the word stand firm in the things that were, number one, preached to you based on the Word of God. This is not talking in any way about human traditions. There have been some twisting of that text. See, human traditions are important. You know, the Catholics will use that in that way. No, no, it's traditions based on this book. Stand firm on the traditions spoken to you, preached to you, or by our letter, things that you've read. So preaching of the word, reading of the word. You hear the preaching, you do the reading. Stand firm in those truths. So dear church family, may we hear this call afresh and anew today. Stand firm, stand firm. Got to move quickly. Number four, last few are not as long. Verse 13 gives us a fourth word, a tender word of salutation. A tender word of salutation. Okay, a lot of mystery right here. Verse 13, very cryptic verse here. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Okay, uh, a, a very puzzling statement. You know, the, the commentators are all over the map on this one. Who is she? Who is the she? Who is this lady here? Uh, what about Babylon? There's no record of Peter ever going to Babylon. So what, what's Babylon there? Uh, we're pretty sure regarding Mark, Mark, my son, that's not a physical son. That's a spiritual son. We're pretty sure Mark is Peter's co-worker and writer of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and uh, probably not the physical son of Peter. It's a son in the faith, kind of like, uh, like Paul and Timothy. Timothy was... Uh, Paul's son in the faith. Mark, likewise, Mark is probably Peter's son in the faith, a, a mentee, somebody that he has mentored, worked with, discipled, okay? Regarding she and Babylon, here's my opinion. Take Lee Flusher Chunk, you study it. She, I believe, is the church, the church, the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. Peter's saying the church here greets you. Babylon often in Scripture is code for the city of Rome. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down near Rome, not in Rome, but near Rome. He was crucified, church tradition has it, upside down. So it could be greetings from the church in Rome. Babylon is also emblematic of not just the specific city of Rome, but the whole world and its satanic system. Okay, And if that's correct, then Peter is saying to his readers, the church, she, the bride of Christ, which for now God has placed in this evil world as, a, as an outpost or an embassy for his kingdom greets you. As Bob Utley stated, God's church was established in the enemy's territory. That's why we have to stand firm, right? Okay, so again, when we get to heaven, we'll find out who the she is. I believe it's the church. We'll find out what Peter meant by using the term Babylon. I think it's the evil world system. The church in the world is greeting you. We'll find out what he meant when we talk to him in heaven. What a fun day that will be. That'll be awesome on it. Number five. i uh, got two more here. Verse 14. In the first, in 14a, we've got a loving word of affection. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Here's a call to openly demonstrate brotherly affection. To openly demonstrate Commitment to one another, to openly demonstrate our corporate unity. The kiss of greeting was customary in the ancient East and in Jewish culture. In our culture, it would be more like, it would be a handshake or a hug, okay? 
So we're not going to call on you to kiss each other, but handshakes and hugs are, are good if you're comfortable with that. I know we're in this you know, pandemic stuff and all that, but, but here, what we have here is a vivid, listen, a vivid reminder, vivid reminder in the kiss of love, the, the, the affectionate physical show of affection to fellow church members. We have a vivid reminder, listen to me carefully, of why virtual church will never cut it. Never. Never. Yeah, we're going to still provide it. But I'm begging you, and I'm, I'm exhorting you, and I'm pretty much, as your elder, telling you, don't use it as a crutch. You use it when you're sick. You use it when you are providentially hindered. But virtual church will never, will never cut it. Watching TV preachers will never suffice. Never, never. And I'm not even sure it pleases God at all when you are intentionally foregoing the physical gathering with the people of God. Check out my last summer series on on, on, uh, the gathering, the importance of gathering. Virtual church will never be a valid replacement for gathering physically as God's people. And I'll just leave it at that for today. And just if, if... I can't remember if we've announced this or not, but at a, at a recent elder meeting, uh, we're, we're not ever shutting down again. Now, you use your wisdom, and you do what's right for you, and you do what you think is safe and fitting for your situation. And we trust the Holy Spirit leading you in that totally and absolutely. But we're not shutting down ever again. We're just not. If it's just me here, which it was for nine weeks, and how, how silly that was, you know, preaching to an empty building, okay, but... Anyway, I'll stop there with that, and we'll wrap up. Number six, last word, 14b, a comforting word of benediction. A comforting word of benediction. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Key phrase there, of course, is what? In Christ. In Christ. Why? Because of Isaiah, of verses like Isaiah 48, 22. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for those who are not in Christ. Oh, non-Christians may think they're at peace. But ultimately, and that's the key word, right? Ultimately is always the key word. Because this life is brief. This life is nothing compared to eternity. Ultimately is always the, the, the... the operative word. So ultimately, no matter how much they talk, may talk about it, non-believers are not at peace. And the sad thing is they don't even realize it. Because the only peace that matters and the only, only peace that lasts is peace with God. And that only comes through Jesus. That only comes through Jesus. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace to all of you who are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Repent, confess your sin, confess Jesus as Lord, and believe that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. So let's try to summarize this great letter very briefly. Remember, 
It's been about a year and a half since we started, but it opened with the theme of the living hope, the living hope that we have in Christ alone. We've been given a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope is imperishable. It is undefiled. It will never fade away. And it's reserved in heaven for all who have been given the new birth. Peter then from there moved to our life as strangers and aliens in this world, which is not our ultimate home. There's that word ultimate again, not our ultimate home. It's, 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 it's a city that does not last. We seek an enduring city. We are pilgrims passing through. And while here, we honor God by submitting to his ordained authorities. We set apart Jesus as Lord in our hearts. And we are always ready to speak of the hope we have in him with gentleness and respect. And then Peter moved to a close by addressing the fiery trials that believers will face. And we are not to be surprised by these. Our life on this planet is supposed to be hard. It's one of the ways God grows us and sanctifies us. And we are not alone. We endure these trials with other believers as we submit to faithful shepherds who lead us, guide us, teach us, and fight to protect us. Chuck Swindle sums up the letter pretty good with this brief statement. In short, Peter's magnificent letter accomplishes the vital purpose of providing essential hope in hurtful times. Hallelujah. And dear church family, we finished another book of the Bible. What a great day, even in the midst of our heartache. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. We didn't deserve to have these precious truths written down for us to read and to know. We didn't deserve to have the gospel so clearly laid out for us in your book. We didn't deserve to to be let known the way of salvation from your inerrant word yet you did it you did it you gave us your word may we be forever thankful may we heed it may we obey it for our good and your glory in Christ's name we pray Amen.